we're uh, proud uh, to support the alliance uh, with Fiat, and we're glad it was uh, signed yesterday uh, prior to the company going into bankruptcy. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway in New York City. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt in Seattle. That was Ron Gettelfinger you heard from the early show on CBS. He's the president of the United Auto Workers and he's been busy getting a deal done with Chrysler. Laura, it is spring here. I walked outside my door this morning. Sudden cherry blossoms everywhere. That sounds so great, Hannah. I want to um, say that on this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at what's happening with that Chrysler deal, because in Detroit, unlike Seattle, it's not really the land of sweetness and light. But for you, I'm gathering the change in weather has made you a little happier. It works. I don't know, something. I actually, I just spent hours listening to all the confessional voicemails that we got in on our apology line, which sort of did help me feel better. I just People were so smart and thoughtful, and we're going to hear a little bit of those later in the podcast. But yeah, feeling good. Planet Money Indicator is feeling good too, Laura. Yes, it is feeling 65.1 worth of good, whatever that is. That's the monthly consumer sentiment index. It was up from 57.3 last time. That one is from the University of Michigan and Reuters. There's another confidence index, the conference board. It came out with numbers this week, too, and they are also up. Which is probably good news, right? Right, yeah. Well, and I always actually wonder how they measure confidence. So with the conference board, there's this research firm. They get in touch with 5,000 U.S. households and usually, you know, 3,500 or so people are actually there, and they ask them these five carefully chosen questions. How are you feeling about buying? How are you feeling about spending? The state of your personal finances? And this time around, you know, people weren't necessarily feeling great about things right now, but they were feeling good about the future, like six months from now. I wonder, Hannah, what it would look like if they just asked all of those questions just in Detroit, especially, because I spent the morning listening to some really sad news from there. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a depressing scene. Um, So, Laura, I'll just set this up. So Chrysler, they had their first bankruptcy hearing in court this morning. They're actually holding that in New York. But the pain is just kind of everywhere. Taxpayers, you and me, we're spending $8 billion to help Chrysler get going after the bankruptcy process is finished. And Chrysler's hoping to partner with Fiat, maybe those small Italian cars. They'll do the trick. And this United Auto Workers Pension Fund is actually going to be the new majority owner. I should probably disclose here, Hannah, that I used to be a UAW member. Really? You you worked on an assembly line? No, no, it was when I worked for a newspaper that happened to have a UAW local. It was the clerical division. That's what it was. So, Laura, maybe if you stuck it out, you could own part of Chrysler right now. Yeah, instead of part of Planet Money, that'd be good. (laughs) So you talked with uh, NPR's Frank Langfitt, and you talked through some of the details. He covers the auto industry for NPR. And Frank has been camped out in Detroit off and on for months now. And he told us it's not that clear how this bankruptcy thing is going to work or even whether it can work at all. Nobody knows. 
uh, there's a lot of skepticism, and there probably should be on a variety of fronts. Yeah, the White House was saying 30 to 60 days in and out of bankruptcy court in New York, and they use this word surgical. Um, but you're going to have battles. I mean, you've got these investment banks and the hedge funds. Some of them are holding out for a better deal from the government. And, and one of the things is they're secured creditors, which means they actually have a claim on the property. So in theory, like, you know, one of these hedge funds could say, I want this plant. Now, they're probably not going to do that. But legally, they have some standing. White House, of course, is going to fight this very, very hard. The more you watch as it evolves, it's not Chrysler negotiating with these people. It's, it's the government. It's the administration. So when I get on these background briefings at the White House and at the Treasury Department, the guys say, yeah, so, you know, we told the bondholders you're going to take this because this is what's fair. And so it's very clear that the White, House is, the White House is dictating the terms. I mean, obviously they're working with the companies, but the White House, in terms of, of you know, who gets what in, in, you know, outside of a bankruptcy court, it's very clear that they're driving the agenda. So you've got a couple of quite powerful invested players here. You've got the creditors who can come in and really say, we want this factory? Give In theory, the they could. I don't. Nobody's going to say that because, let's face it, a lot of people don't want these factories. Uh, a lot of the, some of the factories aren't making products that anybody is all that interested in. But the point being, the, the, the factories are collateral. You know, this is this is a debt where there's collateral on the debt, and so it's not like these guys just come in and they're what's called unsecured creditors, where they're sort of last in line to get the scraps from a bankruptcy. Um, they're much further up the food chain, and so they're at least legally in a stronger position. But don't for a minute, don't think this is going to be political. I mean, if, if this were really like an economic business decision, the company, let's be honest, this would be in liquidation right now. This would be a garage sale. Because if you talk, I mean, I, I've been coming here now um, on a crisis story at least for four or five months and, and on autos generally about three years. But really over the last six months, almost every source of mine in, in the Detroit auto business, except those who are in Auburn Hills who work for the company, say, you've you got to break this company up. It doesn't make sense as a company, and it's better to sell it off for parts. But, you know, that's going to be huge job loss. We're in a deep recession. And Mr. Obama, for political reasons and probably for humane reasons, doesn't want to do that. Um, so the politics of what's going to go on in that New York courtroom is going to be really interesting. Let's talk for a second about the new ownership of the company. Cerberus, the private equity firm that bought in in 2005, is it? Yeah, in? no, I can't. I can't remember. It's been about maybe two years or so. Yeah, yeah they maybe bought it. They got it from Daimler, which had been running it for about ten years, and that was like the like an unbelievably bad merger. Okay, so Cerberus, the private equity firm, they're out, and they are. the new majority is a group I find really very interesting. I think I should probably say, in full disclosure, I used to belong to this thing. Believe it or not, in the on the uh, office workers division, the new majority is. A United Auto Workers Healthcare Trust Fund. They got 55% ownership. Can you tell me how that's going to work? Did anybody expect this going in? No, not really. But, you know, this is really sad. Um, let me tell you how we got here first. Back in 2007, I was here for the whole summer when they were trying to take care of this gigantic retiree health care problem. It's way too expensive, health care costs rising. So what the companies had to do is they wanted to get this off their books. And they said, listen, we'll give the union, we'll set up a trust fund, the union takes it over, we'll give them billions and billions of dollars, and then we're rid of this, right? Well, the bottom dropped out of the car market, 
particularly Chrysler is a good example, wasn't well positioned. They don't have enough money now to pay into that fund. So they have nothing left to give the fund but ownership in the company. I mean, that's how bad it is. And I can tell you sort of on a personal level, I I covered those negotiations back in the summer of 2007. I thought the health care trust fund was a really creative idea. Everybody liked it. And then to see this whole idea kind of crash and burn with the economy is just really sad. I mean, that's Frankly, that's how bad things are with the company. So, so like, who now runs the company? Well, it's not exactly the union. And I've been having a little bit of fun. I'm going over to the – I'm spending a lot of time in union halls. And I'll say to workers, I'll say, so, you know, uh, now that you own the company, are you going to cut your own wages? You know, and they're like – they don't even understand how this is going to work. They're totally confused. Yeah, we talk sometimes to a Chrysler worker who makes doors for the Jeep Grand Cherokee. Uh-huh. And he says that they went into the union negotiation hearing one thing all about concessions and never heard a word about this whole thing with the health care trust fund taking over. I don't think he believes anything until it happens anymore. You know, I sat in a meeting for two hours the day before the vote, and that never even really came up, <laughs> that, that part of it at all. I mean, I read that in the paper. I don't know why. Maybe it wasn't a done deal at the time, but I know that the uh, union leadership Monday night was, you know, had their meetings uh, late Monday. And Tuesday morning we were there, you know, discussing the vote. And then Wednesday was the vote. Uh, so that, that never did come up. But it's, it's not that the union's actually running the company. The way it's going to be is that this health care trust fund is going to have ownership of the company. Fiat is going to run the company, probably with a fair bit of influence from the United States government. But the healthcare trust fund is going to be run. It's going to have some people on it from Fiat, some people on it from the government. I think maybe one person from the union. So it's not like, you know, the union workers are going to be sitting around on the board of the company saying, oh, you know, let's build a new Dodge Ram hybrid or something like that. This is not the big touchdown for for the Chrysler workers here. Oh, God, no. And they don't, I mean, imagine the conflict of interest here. Who are you, you know, where's your interest? Um, Saving jobs or boosting the value of the company, which, you know, in many cases, as we've seen in the United States over the years, uh, is diametrically opposed. Just so I make sure I understand, Frank. If the United Auto Workers were, let's picture it as a large umbrella. Yeah. Is this healthcare trust fund under that umbrella? Or I don't is think it so. It's outside? not. I mean, it's, it's. It's. I think that the way it's explained to me is, <clears throat> it's independent. I mean, the board, since the United Auto Workers do not control the whole board, they don't control the fund, but it's for the purposes of. You know, it's it's to help the retirees, of the United Auto Workers. But I think it's more of an independent fund. It's not like. I mean, I mean, it's it has some independence, or I think a lot of independence, from the United Auto Workers. Otherwise, you would have these crazy conflicts of interest. Let's talk about what got Chrysler into this in the first place. Obviously, the recession killed car sales, but I mean, Chrysler was weak and in trouble before that. So, can you just tell us what went wrong? It's a pretty familiar story. Um, Chrysler is a small company. Uh, much smaller than GM and Ford, so if it if it makes a mistake, it gets hurt much more. It put almost all of its eggs in the SUV, truck, and minivan basket in the 1990s, and they made a lot of money. You know, they basically invented the minivan, and that's been very successful. But, you know, tastes change, and in the 2000s, when gas prices started to go up, people sort of went towards smaller cars. 
Chrysler had totally neglected those cars. I mean, it just didn't put much money into them. The other issue, frankly, has been quality. I mean, I, I have the Consumer Reports issue on cars that I think came out around April. There's not one recommendation of a Chrysler product. So, I mean, how do you compete when the Bible of your business basically says none of these cars are that attractive? I was over at Union Hall, uh, one of the Union Halls, earlier this week at 1264. It's in Sterling Heights, just north of Detroit. I was talking to this worker named Robert, and he was trashing the quality of, of the vehicles that they make. And you don't often get, people are pretty defensive, understandably, in, in some of these halls, but Robert was really blunt. Let me, let me play for you something that he said. Uh, I hate to say it, being a Chrysler worker for this long, but there are some product there I just would not buy. Like what? Uh, the Sebring. Uh, it got a terrible rating, Consumers Report. Terrible. One of the lowest ever. Uh, I've been in auto repair business with my family all our life, and we've noticed a lot of Chrysler products had some difficulties with ball joints and steering gear and, and electronics that we just don't see in Hondas, Toyotas, Fiats, and things like that. So Robert, he's a die maker, and he says the real problem isn't the workers themselves. It's the, it's the parts and the interiors and things like that that they get. He also says when the company was owned by Daimler, you know, the Mercedes-Benz company, that they took a lot of money out of the company, and they sort of a lot of the parts ended up getting cheapened. Um, here's something else he said, kind of fleshing out that idea. The components are cheap. I hate to say that. I mean, if a ball joint fails at 19,000 miles, something's wrong. I had brakes go completely gone at 8,000 miles. Now, in fairness, the car he was just talking about was actually built in the 80s. But the problem is consumers remember this stuff. They remember if things break down, and it takes a long time to win people back. All right, Fiat coming in now. They haven't sold cars in the U.S. since the 1980s. What happened to them? Well, this is a really interesting issue. Fiat had quality problems as well. They got uh, kind of a really lousy reputation, and that's why they had to leave. I don't know whether you remember, but back then everybody said, you know, Fiat stood for Fix It Again, Tony. So <laughs> this is going to they're, they're going to come back to the United States, right? But here's a question: How do you convince anybody over forty? That these uh, that, that they should buy a Fiat, even though the cars actually are better. They, because they they're cute, for Pete's sake. Yeah, but but uh, you may know that, and and cuteness. I don't Come know. On, we have I a mean, picture of one on the blog. It's red. It's cute. Really? Yeah. Looks like a little well, smart we'll say, car. You know, maybe listen. Maybe you will prove you will prove me wrong. But but Fiats did not leave here. Um, I mean, they left with their tail between their legs. And so so the question is, how do you how do you remarket Fiat? The other, the other thing is that, as we just said, Chrysler has had quality problems, too. So now you have two brands with reputations for bad quality in America. How do you market them? I have no idea. But it's going to be a while before we see any of this. I mean, it, it takes a long time to get through sort of, you know, emissions testing and meeting all the U.S. standards. So a minimum 18 months before we see any Fiat's being built, you know, rolling out here, probably more like two years or longer. So the next thing it sounds like for Chrysler and all of its employees – particularly the ones working on the line, is a big 60-day vacation, really. Chrysler is going to shut down all of its plants while they get reorganized. I guess the union workers get a, get a certain amount, a large portion of their pay. They do. So they do. Not the worst case for them. No. That must, Detroit must be a very strange place right now. It's a very strange place. It, you know, it is the worst economy. Michigan is the worst economy in the country, and it has been in recession. You talk to people here, and they say, hey, man, we've been in recession since 2001. I mean, this is our life. 
And it definitely affects, as it does anywhere, the mentality. I mean, where people feel really beaten down. A lot of people have lost their jobs. The value of their homes are so low now that they're chained here. They can't go south. They can't go somewhere else to find a job. So they're just sort of stuck in an economic purgatory. The other thing is that this is still very much, you know, a monoculture. It's it's a company town with these three, um, these three Detroit automakers. And there is, there is a certain insularity here, and people get very defensive. Um, there is, even though these, all of these companies have struggled, they're still, you know, they're still the biggest people around here. And like the Ford family, uh, Ford's doing better than the other two, is still sort of seen as royalty in Detroit, even though, you know, this business has definitely had some big ups and downs. One thing you find is that a lot of people here, and in the union halls, they feel like they've become real punching bags for the country. And they feel like, you know... But why? Because they had such good benefits and pay for so long? A variety of things. I think that the, they feel the, the country blames them for bad vehicles, which in the 70s and 80s are true, but less so in the 2000s. They've actually improved the quality, with the exception of Chrysler. Ford and GM, particularly Ford, have some very good vehicles, and ones that, that are very good in quality. Not quite as good as the Japanese, but they're good. But I think people here feel very put upon. They feel that in the coast, that people look at them like they're dinosaurs, like they build dirty, you know, they, they work in factories and they're dirty. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, I get these conversations over beers at night with people. It's very candid. It's very pained. Um, yesterday, I was talking to a union local head who said, you know, and, and he was going off of talking points, obviously, but was saying, you know, we build stuff, and, and, and we're treated terribly, and we ask for not that much money, and AIG, you know, burns up all of this money, and, you know, yes, they're hated, but they, they you know, individually, people don't criticize AIG workers, and they don't even understand what AIG really does, but he was saying, because people know what we do, it's easier for them to be critical. Hanna, that monoculture thing Frank was talking about, it's going to be a strange 60 days while all the Chrysler workers wait to go back to work in the factories. Yeah, I bet that's going to be weird. And the way Joe Grassi tells it, you really can't get away from the auto industry. He says that when you go to take your car for repairs, you get an employee discount, and they look at you really funny if you don't have anybody in your family who works for an automaker, so you don't ask for it. They just think, nobody? (laughs) It's a different world. Okay, so um, Laura, last week David Kestenbaum and I, we stepped into the radio confessional booth and we just sat and thought about the economy. You know, and we were actually inspired to do this because we all keep going out and asking people who's to blame for the crisis, who caused it, and, you know, they point some fingers. There were definitely institutions and individuals who did really irresponsible things and definitely some places to direct our anger but the the biggest finger, it's most consistently pointed at all of us. People just say, you know, we're all to blame. And we're interested in that idea and sort of seeing if you all are feeling it. Because I sometimes feel like saying, oh, we all did it is a little bit of a cop out. It's a way to avoid actually naming anybody who made a bad decision or wrote a bad piece of legislation or something. And we thought, well, OK, let's swim around in that and see if anybody would put a name to it, to saying, I am a little bit to blame. We heard from many, many of you, and today we're just going to pick out a couple. They're kind of along the Detroit manufacturing theme, just a couple. 
Hi, this is Adam Davidson. You've reached the Planet Money Apology Line. If you're a government official, press 1. If you work for a large money center bank, press 2. No, I'm just kidding. That's not how we're doing it. This line is for anyone who wants to own up to some small part of the economic crisis or if you want to own up to some big part of the cause of the economic crisis. Please also give us your name and a way to contact you and also If you're leaving a message here and you don't explicitly tell us not to, we may use uh, the recording uh, on the podcast, on the radio, or in in other ways. But you can tell us not to, and then we won't. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Ann Davidson calling from Toronto, Canada. And I have to admit, I think I'm partly to blame for the collapse of the auto industry because I never did learn to drive. I'm now 51 and um, not planning to, and I'm, I'm sorry. Um, we have pretty good transit here, and so I've never bought a car, bought gas, nothing. Um, so, sorry, guys. This is Bronwyn Stein. I'm calling in with my economic confession, and it's actually something that's been weighing on my mind quite heavily over the last, oh, I don't know, decade. Uh, it goes something like this. I've been in the workforce since I was 15 years old. And the first job I had was probably the hardest job I ever had. And I worked the hardest and I made the least money. And in every successive job, I've made more money and worked less hard, basically. Like the the more money I made, the less hard I had to work to get it. And that's continued, you know, for 20 years now. So... I think I share this with a lot of Americans, and I also kind of think that I'm too good for a job that actually creates something. In other words, I want to be paid to think and sit at a desk, and part of me knows that's really not practical for most of the world, and it's not sustainable if you think about it globally. So I think Americans think we can get by just on services, and we can't. And that's my confession. If you want to dial into our apology line, the number is, you ready? Pencils? 202-371-1775. And I'll post that on the blog, too, npr.org slash money. Come swing by. It's where we live when we're not talking into your ears. And we will be back talking into your ears on Monday. We will talk about the other great big problem in Detroit, General Motors. See you then. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Hannah Joffrey-Walt. Thanks for listening.